Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives. In today's episode, we talk with Adam Curry about what it's like to follow a vision instead of a path, how research at Princeton University showed that our consciousness knew about the September 11th attacks hours before it happened. We talk about what we think consciousness is and the current evolutionary theories around why it exists. And finally, about cutting edge technology that's happening right now in Silicon Valley around consciousness and the wild applications of it. So without further ado, let's jump in. I am honored to bring you today's guest, Adam Curry. Adam is a hardware hacker and technology entrepreneur in San Francisco who explores the idea that consciousness and reality may be interconnected. He was fascinated enough by this idea to organize the Collective Consciousness App Project, which we will be hearing about more in today's podcast. He was the recipient of the MIT Series Connection Prize at 17 years old for an invention that converted electro-gravitational phenomena into signals that can help forecast seismic events such as earthquakes. Yes, I know that sounds pretty cool and can't wait to hear more about that. Um, Adam has also been featured in the Discovery Channel's Through the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman and is on the board for the Society of Scientific Exploration. He studied physics and creative writing at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Welcome, Adam. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. So what I thought we could do is get started by hearing a bit of your background and what got you on this path. Sure. Well, as the bio indicated, I'm a technology entrepreneur, but really for about half my life, I've been uh, involved in the consciousness research community. Uh, And that started when I was a punk kid of 15, and uh, a friend's dad had told me about this science conference that was taking place in California, and it was the conference of the Society for Scientific Exploration. So I went along, and I was totally blown away. Uh, This was a collection of professional scientists who were fascinated with physical anomalies, so data that uh, doesn't really fit the standard framework for explanation, but nonetheless is a persistent phenomenon. And they sort of saw the value in exploring that. It made science seem a lot more fun than it had in the classrooms. I can imagine. (laughs) And that got me hooked. And there at the conference, I met Bob John and Brenda Dunn. Bob was the dean of Princeton, the engineering school, and Brenda was the lab manager of Princeton's PEAR Lab. PEAR is an acronym for Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, which is a mouthful, but it basically means a lab that explores the deeper questions of the relationship between consciousness, our minds, and the physical world outside of our body. So these are typically machines. And uh, I think being the youngest person there by uh, an order of magnitude, um, they kind of took me under their wing and invited me to Princeton, where I spent a couple of years in summer internship capacities, uh, doing experiments and helping out there and just hanging out. Amazing. And I'll just to back up a bit. So tell me about your, uh, were your parents in science, in science? What were you like as a kid? I want to hear more. I mean, cause you show up at this conference, right? And that it was mind blowing. Were there, was there anything that led up to this? I don't know. I think I was a pretty unusual kid. I uh, spent most of uh, my life up to that point in my room, taking things apart and building electronics and 
all of that kind of thing. No, my parents did not have a background in science. I grew up actually on a rural horse ranch in Colorado. Not the best place to sort of get an education in consciousness. (laughs) (laughs) Though you never know, it could be found anywhere, but yeah, typically not so. Yeah, yeah. My dad was an inventor for a time, and uh, so was my grandfather. So if I am anything, and I don't know exactly what I am, but I suppose it's an inventor, and the possibilities of kind of cutting ahead of the curve by looking at unexplained phenomena Mm -hmm. was appealing as an inventor because you can create new discoveries or new technologies perhaps more easily than if you went the sort of stand-in-line conventional route of incremental improvements on existing knowledge. But with way more risk, obviously. So you, so okay. So growing up, you're uh, a kid who spends a lot of time tinkering and building and inventing. Then you go to this conference, and then you're now with some of the top minds in the country, right? Working on this really forward-thinking project. What was what was that like to the people that you're, you know, friends, family? You know, this idea of sort of following a vision and not a path. What was that like for you? It was a lonely journey. Mm. You know, sort of where I was growing up in Colorado, there there weren't many people that followed that kind of path. Let's say uh, intellectual professionals, let alone career professionals, yep. that way. So um, there wasn't much that I think people could do for me. But I I had a really wonderful support system in Bob and Brenda at the Paralab um, and in other people through the Societies for Scientific Exploration who I think wanted to see me succeed in the field. But like you said, it comes with its own set of challenges. The challenges should be obvious, but I think it's it's difficult for anyone trying to do something new in any field, uh, but it gets compounded when you're talking about science because uh, science is by its nature a very conservative discipline, and it makes sense that it is. And so trying to do something or, or promote or explore uh, things that don't fit our conventional framework, it's difficult to sort of gain the ear and attention uh, and <laughs> even have any opportunities to, to succeed in that field. But you have, right? So what were... What have been the tools or where have the successes come from for you? What would you attribute them to? I think maybe sticking to it for a long time. Hmm. So, you know, 15 years ago, uh, this was, you know, six years before YouTube and the internet hadn't really kind of blown up with the idea that we can explore consciousness and it's okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the, the timing that I had there was off with respect to exploring consciousness. But it nonetheless remained something that was really important to me and that was, I think, perhaps... I saw then as one of the deepest mysteries and uh, it sort of exists in the world. And so that kind of gave me the, the energy to, to keep going, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So a good personal support system and remaining inspired by the deeper questions posed by the field sort of kept me going up until today where I, th- I think that consciousness is kind of the biggest thing in, in many disciplines in science. Um, you know, people are getting their masters and PhDs in this and, um, their PIs aren't uh, batting an eye at it. Right. Okay. So now on this, one of the things, a term that you've used is this hard problem of consciousness. What does that mean? Yeah. So in, in different disciplines, there's kind of a revolution happening and it's around consciousness. And uh, one is in philosophy of mind and another is in neurobiology or evolutionary psychology. And this has to do with essentially our realizing that we have an inability to explain what consciousness is from a strictly materialistic point of view. The sort of standard assumption up to this point has been, well, consciousness is an illusion that's produced by the brain, sort of a few billion neurons, several trillion possible connections, and they all fire together in a somewhat unique way, and consciousness emerges 
as an illusion from, from the brain, right? Okay. Uh, sounds good, but the problem is an illusion to whom? If you say consciousness is an illusion, it presupposes the very existence of the thing it's trying to say doesn't exist. <laughs> right. Okay, now say it again, because what you're saying is complicated. So just walk us through it again. So saying that if it's an illusion, that if our brain created it, but then who is determining that if not us? Exactly. Is that what uh, you're saying? You, you need consciousness to experience anything, including an illusion. Mm. So the, the brain only or the, the matter only kind of explanation for, for consciousness, it doesn't really stack up in philosophy of mind. Furthermore, in, in neurobiology, when we use things like neuroimaging or fMRI, certainly the brain is involved in the sense that different experiences will light up different parts of the brain. Um, and if you remove or damage those parts of the brain, then those experiences go away in people. But that is more of a framework for understanding. It's not an explanation. Mm, that's an interesting distinction. A framework for it, but not an understanding. Exactly. Yeah. So in, and here's what I've been confused about is when they are researching the brain, they still don't yet know, for example, where all of our memories are stored. Is that correct? I'm not an expert in that, but yeah. uh, I think that there's still some, there's still a lot to be learned. David Chalmers, a philosopher, is, is famous for codifying the, the hard and easy problems of consciousness. The easy problem is, is not easy at all, and it basically says, okay, in a, in a few hundred years of good neuroscience, we'll be able to sort of pinpoint uh, more accurately how memories are created, where they're stored, how the brain and the nervous system and the body generally is involved in, <clears throat> in consciousness. And, you know, we're well on our way to that, I think. There's great work that's been done there. The hard problem is explaining why consciousness exists at all. Mm. And we really have no explanation for that. Um, in evolutionary psychology, you could have an organism that is like a human body and it has a brain just like ours. And you could poke it in response to stimuli. Um, but it, it doesn't explain why there's an, a subjectivity attendant to that brain. Right. So here's a way that it's been explained to me. And tell me if this, I, I like to put metaphors to everything because it helps me to understand it may be for our listeners as well, um, is I believe this was in the book, The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, that if we imagine ourselves sitting in a movie theater, consciousness is the person watching, or person is the wrong term to use, but uh, watching the movie, which is our life. And if you don't separate yourself, you'll think that your life is the movie when in fact it's you are observing it or consciousness is observing it. Is that a fair assessment? Or what would you say about that metaphor? Yeah, that's interesting. I know the hard problem grapples with the reason why we have a first person perspective, mm. uh, which you know we, we can't explain. But I think the, the movie theater metaphor is, is an interesting one. I love metaphor, so I'll give you another. Okay, good. You can think of the difference between a human and a zombie. Okay. Yes. <laughs> somebody, somebody's not afflicted with the with the zombie virus, right? Yeah. Uh, so you, Susanna, you're you're not bitten by the zombie, so you know that you're not a zombie. But you can look around at the post-apocalyptic landscape before you and see the lumbering zombies, and you know that they're zombies. Okay. Now you can go up to the zombie and you can poke it and you can chastise it and scream at it, and it will react but there's no light on inside. Mm. So biologically, you know, the cells are firing, uh, the muscles are moving, 
but there probably isn't a first-person perspective to the zombie. That has gone away with the virus. Ah, that's a great example. And so there's still the operation of the brain. Well, let me ask you this. In the zombies, are they still experiencing emotions? Are they having thoughts or what's... Well, in this, in this thought experiment, no. Okay. Yeah, in this thought experiment, no. Uh, maybe I can give you another example, too. Okay. This has to do with the, the notion of qualia, which is tangential to, to consciousness research. There's a famous uh, make-believe character called Mary, the colorblind scientist. Okay. Mary is the world's foremost expert on color. She knows everything there is to know about how wavelengths enter the eye and uh, hit the rods and cones in a particular way, which cause the brain to fire and the experience in individuals of color to be manifest. But there's a problem. She's colorblind. <laughs> mm. So she knows everything there is to know about the mechanism of color, but she's never experienced color. Mm. So she lacks that first-person perspective. So similarly, you can think of, um, of brain research up to this point taking place similarly in a black-and-white room. Okay. Um, we may come to know everything there is to know about how the brain works and how neurons fire and glial cells operate and connections are made, but that still doesn't explain how a... Uh, a few pounds of uh, pink and gray tissue um, can produce first-person perspective, uh, emotions, intentions, and even why it should from an evolutionary point of view. Got it. That that helps a lot. That helps a lot. And that even goes... Uh, so my mind goes to this idea of... And I'm going very... going pre-Big Bang here. And I know this is theory, by the way. There's no science in this. It's just my my one theory of the why are we here is that pre-Big Bang, um, you can know something. I can imagine what it would be like to be, to grow up in poverty. I'm making up an example. Or to grow up, I don't whatever it is. But if I've never experienced it, I only have knowledge of it, but it's different to actually experience it. And so that, that potentially one reason we came into being that consciousness always existed, but we wanted to actually experience it being here. Yeah, that could be. There are a, a handful of scientists, actually, mainstream scientists, who would take that position. And I'm thinking of Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff. Okay. Roger Penrose is a famous mathematician at Cambridge, uh, and Stuart Hameroff is a um, uh, he's a medical doctor, and he heads the um, the consciousness research unit at University of Arizona. And they have a, uh, a theory of consciousness which has to do with uh, microtubules in neurons. And these are, little, uh, these are little actual quantum devices that behave like superconductors, or in other words, they can, they can show quantum effects even in body temperatures and, and wet cells. And so essentially what, what they think is that um, the brain, uh, so this organism of the brain, is kind of like a... It's kind of like a classical computer, but a quantum computer at the same time. Okay. And there's a resolution of, of uncertainty, of quantum uncertainty that takes place in cells. You've heard of like the double slit experiment. I, I, can I tell you how many times I have read about the double slit experiment? <laughs> I have watched YouTubes broken down for two-year-olds for the double slit experiment. Yeah. And I still could not explain it to someone accurately. So can okay. we hear in your words? I won't, I won't get in, into that too much, but basically there's this strange thing in quantum mechanics where you can, you can prepare two particles in a way in which they're 
uh, they're connected throughout space and time instantaneously. They, in other words, a single particle can be sort of two places at once. And these are these don't last very long; they decay. But when they collapse into one particle or the other, or one position or another position, according to Hamroff and Penrose, um, that results on mass in an experience of what we call consciousness in the brain. Hmm. So we have the the material stuff that we know and are, are comfortable with happening in the brain, but we also have this resolution of, of quantum level phenomena happening in the microtubules in the brain, uh, the result of which is that first person perspective or subjectivity that kind of goes to the machine. Wow, that is wild. So they have, they're literally, it's as if they're trying to f- almost find consciousness. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, uh, and Ham- uh, Hamroff is an anesthesiologist, so he's he's familiar with a person who is of waking consciousness and a person who is under anesthesiology and seems not to be reactive. Um, and so, a lot of his work has been looking at how anesthesia works. It's still something that actually we don't know. Um, they've thought that it works on the the proteins of cells, um, but it might actually suppress the the microtubule function. There is a debate I think that happened recently. Uh, in which they discuss this. Um, so I'd refer you to Hamroff and Penrose's website to uh, to learn more about it. But I think there's another interesting facet of of their work, which is essentially wisdom traditions throughout the ages have talked about consciousness as being pervasive throughout the universe. And I think there's something to that. They would say that consciousness, it doesn't happen solely in the brain necessarily, but consciousness is kind of spread throughout the universe, but it exists as like a proto-consciousness, or a, th- a thing, something in which you have all the ingredients for consciousness, but it takes a brain with its uh, microtubule function and integrated information systems to be able to produce real consciousness out of that proto-consciousness that pervades the universe. Okay, say that again. Hold on. So, okay, <laughs> hold on. I can't be the only one that's not. Okay, so there, there's consciousness as a whole, right? It's, it's throughout our universe. It's, it's, it's in the plants. It's in the peat, right? It's not just to us. It's like an intrinsic feature of the universe. And, and everything in the universe. Uh, yeah, but right. it's sort of, from their point of view, again, this, this would be like, it's not consciousness as we think of it, but it's like a proto-consciousness or a pre-consciousness. It has all of the ingredients to be the kind of consciousness that we experience, the first person's experience in, in subjectivity. But it requires a brain uh, or similarly complex organism to resolve those uh, on mass quantum phenomena to produce what we know as consciousness. Ah, I see. So it ex- I mean, just to use as an example, uh, trees, right? So, mm-hmm. so meaning that trees, that consciousness exists within them, but because they don't have the function of the brain, then that is what essentially translates, for lack of a better word, the first person sense of consciousness. Is that? Yeah, I think that's, that's how they would look at it. Because it makes me think of, you know, experiments that they talk about when, for example, trees speak to each other through their roots, right? If one gets infected, they, then there are antibodies created in the trees right next to them and how did they know and things like that. And I know I'm, I'm asking about things that you're not, um, you know, in horticulture, but, um, but, but just still trying to get a sense of could that possibly be a, a showing of consciousness? Well, my, my perspective would be, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know what they think about uh, organisms besides human beings. Yeah. 
animals. Um, but I, I think to uh, to say that that plant life is devoid of consciousness, um, assuming that we're talking about the same kind of consciousness, um, is would be a kind of hubris. Yeah. Uh, I'm willing to sort of give the benefit of the doubt there. Uh, maybe a, a good counterexample would be a rock and a brain. Mm, got it. Yep. Although I will say that once I also read about a rock was a great example in helping to understand time in saying that a rock has particles that are moving, subatomic particles that are moving so slowly, but from their perspective, it's moving. But from mm-hmm. our perspective, it's basically it's moving so slowly that it's not moving for us. Right. <laughs> right. And so that, that helps me to understand time because it, if you went from the you know the view of another planet or however far the universe goes out, we think we're moving, but it, we're, it's all happening at once. Mm. Anyway, I digress, but yeah, you brought up the rock and it made me think of the rock. Um, okay, so now I want to hear about, because I know you're working on some very cool projects, um, specifically this Collective Consciousness app. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Uh, the Collective Consciousness app, that is sort of the old name for it, uh, it'll be called Entangled. Okay. Um, but that is basically my attempt to bring consciousness research to Silicon Valley. And uh, in order to explain how it works and what it is, uh, I'll need to describe the Paralab a little more. Okay. So we've been talking about philosophy of mind and about uh, evolutionary psychology <clears throat> and their attempts to uh, sort of grapple with this problem of consciousness. Essentially, the problem they're grappling with is the relationship between mind and matter. Now, there's another perspective that has uh, come about by a handful of physics labs looking at that question of the relationship between mind and matter. And I'm thinking of the pair lab and ions, for example, and others. And essentially, and can you let sorry, will you let people know what ions is? Ions is the Institute for Noetic Sciences. Uh, also in the Bay Area. And these, these labs and a few others have created a class of experiments using random number generators. These are physical devices that produce a stream of ones and zeros um, that are based on some like quantum level phenomena. Um, and if you leave these things be, they produce an even number of ones and zeros. Well, until you get somebody in the lab who is instructed to attempt to influence the random number generator say, to produce more ones or more zeros, whatever their pre-stated intention is. And the devices do. So you have people who, through their own consciousness, can affect uh, these random number generators. So this is an example, perhaps, of the abilities of consciousness and the integration of mind and matter in some level beyond just the mind and the brain. This is the mind and the physical world outside of our bodies. So just let me, again, I'm going to break it down. So there's a random number generator is some, it's a machine, like a computer, essentially, just to have a visual of it. Yep. Okay. So it's like a computer. Um, I walk in and I create the intention within myself that I want to see that random number generator have more ones than zeros. Exactly. Okay. And then subsequently it reacts to my intention and creates more ones than zeros versus what it had been creating randomly prior to me walking in the room. Is Correct. that right? Okay. Exactly. okay. So in the control condition, it produces a statistically balanced number of ones to zeros. In the experimental condition, I could say, Susanna, 
choose whether you want to produce more ones or produce more zeros. And you'd say, I want to produce more zeros. And then you're, you're left free to attempt to influence the machine however you'd like. And then when the, when the experiment is done, then we look at statistically, was there any significant deviation or skew towards, towards zeros? Did it produce more zeros than ones, for example? And generally, you find that this is true, and it's, it's very statistically significant on, on average, uh, on the aggregate, and it's been you know, reproduced uh, several decades now. Uh, but what it means is that there is this relationship between the mind and the world, our consciousness and the physical world, uh, beyond what is described in our theories, right? So out of this came a project called the Global Consciousness Project, and that essentially took random number generators, about 70 of them, and spread them around the world and monitor their output. These, these random number generators would send their data back to a central server and we could look at what's going on. The idea there was that if there's any, there's any there there to this idea that we're sort of all connected or there is a collective consciousness or global consciousness, it might show up in the way that these random number generators behave. So the, the experiment basically goes that we assume that there isn't going to be any covariance or any spikes in the data recorded around the world uh, when there's events that polarize mass attention. Uh, but what they found is that there actually is. Hmm. So famously, um, on September 11th, just a few hours before the first plane struck, the random number generators around the world started to behave similarly to each other. Wow. Uh, for example, they produced sort of, on the aggregate, more ones. And they showed this huge spike, uh, which peaked... Um, during the attacks. Very strange, but very interesting. Wow. So, so there was a pre, precognition amongst the collective consciousness of the world that this was going to happen before it happened. According to the data, that seems to have been the case. Wow. And it was, to, to use your word, statistically significant. Yeah, highly. Wow. And so this has been ongoing now since I think the mid-90s. And events that polarize mass attention, things like earthquakes or World Cup games, they are correlated positively with spikes in, in the worldwide data. So, you know, this has sort of captured the imagination of, of people around the world. And, you know, many books and documentaries have discussed the Global Consciousness Project. So what I'm doing with Entangled is trying to bring the ability to experience this research home to everyone who, who finds it fascinating. Uh, essentially, it's a mobile app, and the app, once downloaded, samples the hardware inside your phone uh, to create a true random string of ones and zeros. Then it sends that to a central server, and then on the on the server side, we'll be able to conduct experiments and analyze data. So this is maybe a way for people to participate in the world's largest consciousness research experiment, where because we have millions of data points, or hopefully we'll have millions of data points, uh, we can look more granularly at how sort of our minds might impact the world kind of on an ongoing basis, both individually, in regions, and around the world. And is it even worth me asking how the app on the phone is able to pick up on my consciousness? That's, uh, that's something that we debate a lot in the field. Okay. Uh, it seems to be enough to set an intention in some way that the output of the random number generator will correlate to moments of meaningfulness in our day-to-day lives. But technically, how, and maybe you don't know, we don't know the answer to it. We know that it exists, but we don't know the how. I mean, how does something on my phone able to pick up on my emotions, intentions, et cetera? 
Yeah. It's, it's again, it's something that we, like you say, we know exists, but we, we don't have a mechanism of explanation. Got it. Okay. We don't have a robust mechanism of explanation. Got it. Okay. So what are the potential applications of something like this? So on the one hand, we have this big research experiment and we'll be looking more into, you know, various things that we can learn. On the other hand, my small part, I think, in consciousness research will be to push ahead on what I call consciousness technology. And that's essentially saying, look, uh, there's been 50 years of research into this field. We know that this stuff is real. The question now is, what can we do with it? And I think that because we have this informational connection between what's going on in our minds and and the behavior of these random number generators, we can produce a, a new category of technology, right? what I call consciousness technology. So I imagine hopefully in the not-too-distant future, the ability for mobile or video games to kind of tap into this effect and create like mind-matter interaction experiences in the video games. You can imagine location apps, things like Yelp or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, probably won't be Yelp. <laughs> Reading essentially the, the impact that that location had upon your random number generator and therefore on how meaningful or impactful it was to you. Wow. So then instead of people having to sit and write about, oh, I was here, here's how it was, it would pick up on the collective consciousness of if people felt it was, if they generally had a really good feeling or they generally did not or, 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 or whatever, that's what it is. Yeah, that's, that's a really exciting possibility that I'm looking to explore. Will it work? I don't know. We'll see, but I, th- I think it's just too exciting not to try. Absolutely, and I just love the, I love the term consciousness technology. I mean, to your point, how could you not explore that? And it feels like, <laughs> it's just, I don't know. I, obviously, I get excited about that, but um, that is awesome. So simultaneously with the same app, though there's two potential, there's the research side of it, and then there's the infinite application, the quantum infinite possibilities with the, with the other side, by just downloading the app, you'll be contributing to this research for both. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, if you've heard of the SETI at home project. Yeah. Yeah. SETI is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And it's basically beaming these satellites into space, looking for radio signals from distant civilizations. And they had like 20 years ago, they were collecting so much data that they couldn't crunch it all. So they wrote this little program that people could download that would donate their computer time, their personal computer time, to crunching the data. And something like 2 million people downloaded it. Not because they're going to be able to have a phone conversation with E.T., <laughs> but because they believed in exploring that. Wow. They believed in the purpose behind the project. And so I see Entangled as starting off in this way. People really care about consciousness. It's something that obviously directly impacts them. And learning more is going to is going to impact, I think, society. And because they think this is cool and they believe in it, uh, this will provide them an opportunity to participate. So down the line, I think it's going to be a while before we we roll out in any practical consciousness technologies, but hopefully not too long. Well, with the work you're doing, it won't be. That's great. That's yeah. very very cool. And you know, I it's funny. I was recently talking with someone. Um, this past weekend who said about 
gosh, I think they said it was only about 15 years ago, they were at Princeton, speaking of Princeton, with, and I can't remember the name, but a head astrophysicist there. And this was in about 2000, I think he thought that he asked, you know, is there life form on out there in the universe? And, and the head astrophysicist at Princeton said, there is a very slim chance that that's possible. And now 15 years later, right, the common knowledge is there's a very slim chance that there isn't life outside in the universe, right? So it is just amazing to see in such a short period of time how much things are shifting in our knowledge and understanding of what's actually happening. You're absolutely right. I think we're also producing environments in which it's okay to voice your real opinion. Mm. Uh, The astrophysicist may actually have thought that there was a pretty good chance, but was it safe 15 years ago to publicly state such? Who knows? So I, I think that, you know, Internally, our perspectives are changing, but also the environment in which we can voice these things as professional scientists, not that I'm one, but as professional scientists can voice these things, is also becoming more amenable to these bigger picture questions. Mm, So exciting. All right. So on those bigger picture um, questions, my final question is, what's the most profound thing that you've learned about the cosmos or collective consciousness that has affected how you live your everyday life? Mm. You know, in this field and related fields, there's a lot of talk about paradigm change. And I I think we all kind of have this sense that pushing forward on consciousness research is going to result in some sort of paradigm shift. And I agree. However, what is meant by paradigm shift is is never really (laughs) described. At least it hasn't been described in a satisfying way to me. By, by working in this field, I think I've come to know a little bit about the sociology of science and the sociology of like public knowledge. Scientists, uh, we don't like to think that we have a metaphysic, but we do. And the metaphysic that dominates the world today is, is called materialism. Mm. And materialism, uh, it really got its foothold about 100 years ago. And materialism is essentially the assumption that Everything that exists in the world can be explained by the known properties of matter, from the quarks and subatomic particles to the brain to the entire cosmos. It's it's all explainable by what we know today Mm -hmm. about how matter works. Well, I think that what we're seeing is, with consciousness research especially, materialism as as a metaphysic running its course. And what I think paradigm shift will be is supplanting that central metaphysic of our age with something that is more integrated. It won't be materialism, and I don't know what it'll be called. Mm -hmm. It'll be something that integrates consciousness with what we've learned about how the physical world works. I think that we'll see consciousness as perceived as something that's like an intrinsic quality of the universe in which a special condition exists in us. When we supplant that core metaphysical assumption, things like the random number generator experiments and intuitions and all of these things that we can't really explain, not only will become obvious, but will become predicted, predictable features of our cosmos, predictable features of our world building. Wow. So it's a truly integrated view. It's not, it's not one or the other. It's both. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that we're, we're going to have some type of neo-dualism mm-hmm. or mind and matter are separate. I'm not a dualist. Uh, But I think that we'll have a a singular integrated picture 
a singular improved integrated picture of, of how the universe works in which consciousness will have its rightful place. Well, thanks to you. Well, you're, you're contributing to that. So thank you, Adam, for the great work that you're doing. And I think I speak for everyone in that I'm really excited to see what you continue to put out. And so if people want to uh, find out more about the app and the work you're doing, where can they find you? You can go to consciousness-app.com or just search for Consciousness App and it'll show up. And there you can um, subscribe to the newsletter or um, follow the Facebook page and uh, we'll provide updates. Uh, I hope to release the app this year in 2015. And uh, anyone on the uh, Facebook page or the newsletter following on Twitter will, uh, will get updates as soon as it comes out. And you guys do a great job. By the way, I follow you on Facebook and I love, I, I'm always learning so much from your Facebook page. So I highly recommend everybody check that out. There's some great resources there. Yeah, great resources. All right. Well, thank you, Adam, so much for this. Fascinating as always and love the work you're doing and appreciate your time today. It's been my pleasure. Take care. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did, and I would love to continue the conversation with each of you over at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash cosmos in you, or our Twitter page. The Twitter handle also is cosmos in you. And of course, at our website, cosmosinyou.com. Again, thank you so much for listening in. I'm so grateful to each of you to be able to share this shared passion and look forward to seeing you next time.